Some big names linked to a big scandal this day. It involves the Bank of Credit and Commerce International, which has been shut down on evidence of massive fraud. Today, the focus of the investigation was on prominent figures in Washington, including a former Secretary of Defense, Clark Clifford. Here's our chief financial correspondent, Mike Jensen. Washington insider Clark Clifford and his law partner, Robert Altman, today were drawn more deeply into the BCCI scandal. Clifford was chairman of First American Bank, Washington, D.C.'s largest, and Altman was president. Both have claimed they did not know that BCCI owned their bank. But a secret 1989 CIA report, the text of which was made available to NBC News Exposé, alleges that the president of BCCI used First American to transfer money in and out of the United States, and that he told First American to keep quiet about it. Also, new charges by former prosecutor Charles Intriago that Clifford's law firm was the paymaster for BCCI's $35 million defense in a money laundering case. And in a Senate hearing today, when the former chief financial officer of BCCI was asked who attended meetings of BCCI's top management. From First America, uh, both Mr. Clifford and Clark Clifford and Mr. Altman Rahman also said a BCCI official in London threatened his life when he left the bank. If you open your mouth or if you go to court, I personally killed people in my life in Multan in Pakistan with, and I'll use the same gun on you. As for Clifford and Altman, Senator Jesse Helms says they got rich through their connection with BCCI. It appears that Mr. Clifford and Mr. Altman had the opportunity to make about $33,300,000 in 18 months' time. Clifford and Altman won't comment. Their attorney says the figures are exaggerated, they never took their orders from BCCI, and they didn't do anything wrong. Mike Jensen, NBC News, New York. We must learn to feel that BCCI is this power, reads a bizarre memo that once circulated at the Bank of Credit and Commerce International. According to the BCCI Affair, a 1992 report to the Committee on Foreign Relations by Senator John Kerry and Hand Brown, the power mentioned here was not abstract. It was vividly underscored by a faint imprint of Michelangelo's iconic Creation of Adam. This well-known work portrays God, encircled by angels, reaching out to touch Adam. Extending this lofty metaphor, the memo continues, BCCI is not merely a group of branches, a set of facts and figures. BCCI is a power, a spirit, a desire. It is all-encompassing and enfolding. It relates itself to cosmic power and wisdom, which is, the will of God. Launched in 1972, BCCI was a banking behemoth that wielded immense power, though not the divine kind this poetic memo might suggest. When law enforcement and regulators forced closure on the bank in 1991, an expansive planetary Ponzi scheme was brought to light. These revelations brought BCCI to the forefront of public media, with Time magazine labeling BCCI the dirtiest bank of them all. However, 
BCCI was hardly a soft target for takedown. The Time article's authors, Jonathan Beatty and S.C. Gwynn, also noted that Manhattan's district attorney, Robert Morgenthau, had received zero support from the Justice Department during his own investigation into BCCI. This lack of support is unsurprising, as obfuscation and protection from the highest levels of power were hallmarks of BCCI. The bank's enigmatic founder, Aga Hassan Abedi, reveled in esoteric musings and dark psychology and surrounded himself with a company of politicians, community leaders, business tycoons, crime bosses, and intelligence agents. The Pakistani banker was nothing if not well-connected. Prior to BCCI, Abedi had served as an economic advisor to Sheikh Zayed bin Sultan, the driving force behind the formation of the United Arab Emirates. According to one insider, it was Abedi himself who initially sowed the seeds for what would become the UAE in Sheikh Zayed's mind. Abedi portrayed himself as a worldly figure, a champion against classical colonialism in the developing world, yet also a critic of the socialist waves that were washing over the Middle East and beyond. He described himself as a liberal and initially envisioned BCCI as a global bank for the Third World. However, with the backing of Sheikh Zayed, the Saudi royal family, and, in all likelihood, Saudi intelligence, what eventually emerged was an organization that specialized in money laundering, capital flight, and fraud. While it's convenient to frame BCCI as a product of Pakistani Saudi networks, allegations of American intelligence involvement do exist. A 1992 Newsweek report cited an anonymous former BCCI officer and Abedi associate as saying that Abedi had worked with the CIA during his United Bank days. According to this source, the CIA encouraged Abedi's venture, recognizing that an international bank could offer valuable cover for covert operations. The source even named Richard Helms, agency director from 1966 to 1973, as being involved in BCCI's creation, stating, What I have been told is that it wasn't a Pakistani bank at all. The guys behind the bank weren't Pakistani at all. The whole thing was a front. According to Beatty and Gwynn, the labyrinthine structure of BCCI straddled two contrasting realms. The public-facing departments dealt with conventional services, such as laundering money for drug cartels and aiding dictators in raiding their national coffers, while the private offices housed something referred to as the Black Network. The Black Network operated a lucrative arms trade, facilitated the transportation of drugs and gold, and was allegedly involved in sex trafficking and murder for hire. In certain cases, this network was said to have influenced the military capabilities of entire countries. Reportedly, the Black Network 
would even survive the eventual demise of BCCI. Adding another layer of complexity, BCCI was tied to the nuclear ambitions of A.Q. Khan, the father of Pakistan's nuclear weapons program. Operating under the umbrella of Khan Research Laboratories, several front organizations were established to facilitate Pakistan's nuclear research, including the Ghulam Ishaq Khan Institute of Engineering Sciences and Technology, the BCCI Foundation, a philanthropic arm of BCCI, contributed funds to this institute. Intriguingly, Ghulam Ishaq Khan, whom the institute was named after, served in several high political positions throughout the 70s, 80s, and 90s, and in 1981 had granted the BCCI Foundation tax-free status. According to Beatty and Gwynn, BCCI was instrumental in procuring an experimental weapon known as a Columbine head for both Pakistan and Iraq. BCCI's role in Pakistan was not solely confined to militaristic pursuits, however. The bank also acted as a diplomatic and economic conduit between Pakistan and Persian Gulf states. As these Gulf nations, particularly Saudi Arabia and Abu Dhabi, grew economically, they relied heavily on an influx of inexpensive labor from Pakistan. This labor exchange was also complemented by a financial exchange, as remittances, money sent back home by overseas workers, flowed from the Gulf states back to Pakistan. Given the absence of robust banking systems and financial oversight, navigating the complex waters of remittances in the developing world is no small feat. Seeing an opportunity, BCCI stepped in and found itself at the heart of these intricate transactions. This not only facilitated the use of Pakistani labor in the Gulf states, but also brought foreign currency into Pakistan. Most importantly, for BCCI, the remittance funds were recorded on the balance sheets, making the bank look far more financially robust than it actually was. Beyond financial transactions, BCCI also procured and provided Pakistani prostitutes, described as teenage singing and dancing girls, for Arab elites. The head of BCCI's Pakistani operations was a close friend of Abedi named Sani Ahmad. According to Nazir Chinoy, the general manager for BCCI in France and Africa, Ahmad was the trusted man for things no one else was supposed to know. He was in charge of the activities we wouldn't handle, like getting girls. If there were bribes to be paid, Ahmad would be the man for the job. BCCI's involvement in sex trafficking will be discussed later in the series. From the outset, BCCI desired a pipeline into the U.S. financial system. Early attempts at establishing this connection are found in Aga Abedi's courtship of American Express. But these negotiations broke down when American Express sought considerable sway over BCCI's internal operations.
not one to be deterred, Abedi then turned to Bank of America, a major player in American finance with a long-standing involvement in euro-dollar trading. Bank of America subsequently came on board, acquiring a substantial 30% stake in BCCI. However, their relationship soon soured. Bank of America would eventually divest its 30% stake, citing concerns about BCCI's activities. On the surface, this looked like prudent risk management, but looks can be deceiving. As the Congressional Report on BCCI points out, Bank of America continued to maintain correspondent banking relations with BCCI, pursued further business opportunities with them, and even colluded in at least one of BCCI's purchases of foreign banks through nominees in South America. Through this relationship, Bank of America earned a great deal of money. Ultimately, Bank of America's departure in BCCI only paved the way for BCCI to weave an even more intricate tapestry of shell companies, proxy stakeholders, and offshore entities designed to camouflage its operations. BCCI soon established ICIC Overseas Limited in the Cayman Islands, which served as a clearinghouse for the sell of shares in its subsidiaries. Beyond its relationship with Bank of America, BCCI's most significant inroad into the U.S. financial landscape came through its association with Burt Lance, an influential banker from Atlanta who was also a close friend of President Jimmy Carter. Burt Lance advised Carter during his 1976 presidential campaign and following the election, Lance was appointed Director of the Office of Management and Budget, OMB. However, his tenure was short-lived, and he resigned amid a flurry of scandals. According to the Congressional Report on BCCI, by the time Lance tendered his resignation to Jimmy Carter in September of 1977, he had become the most notorious banker in the United States. Lance's notoriety was closely tied to his tenure as president of the National Bank of Georgia, which began in 1975. He quickly came under scrutiny for his contentious dealings with the bank's parent company, Financial General Bank Shares. Among the issues were loans he approved that exceeded his lending limits and lacked secure collateral. Lance's activities became particularly problematic when President Carter petitioned Congress to waive ethics rules that would force Lance to sell his National Bank of Georgia stock. Carter argued that Lance would suffer a $1.6 million loss due to the stock's depressed value. Surprisingly, instead of issuing the waiver, Congress launched an expansive investigation into Lance's banking practices. While serving in public office, Lance was also bending the rules by participating in other financial activities. At the time, Financial General Bank Shares principal stockholder George Olmsted 
was facing Federal Reserve orders to divest his shares due to existing regulations on holding companies. Olmsted turned to Lance for assistance, and Lance began scouring the market for potential buyers for both Financial General Bank shares and the National Bank of Georgia. George Olmsted was himself an intriguing man with a multifaceted background. During World War II, Olmsted handled lend-lease requests from Allied governments for Army material and equipment and also operated under the OSS in the China-Burma-India Theater. Following the war, Olmsted took control of International Bank in Washington, D.C., and built a business empire with extensive holdings in other banks, real estate, and insurance companies. It was through International Bank that he was able to acquire a controlling stake in financial general bank shares. Intriguingly, a major international bank holding was the Cayman Islands-based Mercantile Bank and Trust. Mercantile Bank and Trust was one of the nodes within the Black Money Network of Paul Heliwell and also owned a stake in Heliwell's Castle Bank and Trust. During his final days as director of OMB, Bert Lance put Olmsted in touch with J. William Middendorf, who had served as ambassador to the Netherlands under Richard Nixon and was offered a position as Navy Secretary under Jimmy Carter, though he declined this offer in favor of venturing into the private sector. Middendorf was immediately interested in Lance's advances and swiftly established the short-lived Middendorf Group in order to take over financial general bank shares. The Middendorf Group consisted of prominent businessmen such as Jackson Stevens, Jorge Pereira, and Armand Hammer. Jackson Stevens will be discussed in greater detail in Chapter 8 and is an important character in financial general bank shares. Stevens was an ardent supporter of Jimmy Carter, and the two men reportedly attended the Naval Academy together. Reportedly, Stevens chose to involve himself with financial general bank shares because he wanted the organization to use Systematics Incorporated, a company under his control, for its data processing business. Armand Hammer of Occidental Petroleum had an entirely different agenda and viewed financial general bank shares as a gold mine of information that could be leveraged for political and economic gain. According to Edward Epstein, financial general bank shares had outstanding loans to more than 100 U.S. senators and congressmen. Hammer explained that all these congressional borrowers had submitted statements to the bank that revealed their precise financial status, including their debts, earnings, real estate holdings, and other assets. Armand Hammer had blackmail in mind. Intriguingly, Hammer's father was a Soviet spy, and allegations of his own relationship with USSR intelligence dogged him for years. This makes Hammer's interest in financial general bank shares and the database of blackmail on U.S. political figures all the more interesting. 
Hammer ultimately abandoned his planned takeover and decided to sell off his shares to BCCI frontmen. However, it's possible that Hammer's involvement with the world of BCCI was not a one-off, as Gaith Farone, a known BCCI agent, held roughly 1 million shares of Occidental Petroleum throughout the 1970s. According to the New York Times, Farone served as Occidental Petroleum's representative in Saudi Arabia. Furthermore, Occidental Petroleum later partnered with the London-based Atok Oil Company Limited, which was led by a handful of BCCI players that included Farone and Kamal Adham, the Saudi intelligence chief who also co-founded the Safari Club. In regards to BCCI's takeover of financial group bank shares, it would seem that key players included Jackson Stevens, Bert Lance, and Eugene Metzger, a DC-based attorney who served in the Justice Department as well as the Office of the Comptroller of the Currency. BCCI's initial efforts focused on the National Bank of Georgia, a subsidiary of financial group bank shares. However, following a meeting with a BCCI representative, during which Stevens and Lance advocated BCCI purchase financial group bank shares outright, BCCI's ambitions shifted. Shortly after, Stevens, Lance, and Metzger began acquiring significant shares of the bank through public and private purchases. These shares were then sold to investors operating on behalf of BCCI. By January of 1978, BCCI had covertly acquired control of 20% of financial group bank shares. In response to the looming hostile takeover, the bank's leadership aimed a lawsuit at Aga Hassan Abedi, Bert Lance, Eugene Metzger, BCCI, the Middle Eastern Investors, Jackson Stevens and his companies, Stevens Incorporated and Systematics Incorporated. Simultaneously, the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission launched its own suit against the men, alleging securities fraud. To combat these accusations, the Lance Group enlisted the expertise of former Defense Secretary Clark Clifford and Robert Altman, partners-in-law who had previously represented Burt Lance. According to Clifford and Altman, this was their first encounter with BCCI. However, their timeline is challenged by a Washington Post article in December 1977. According to the article, Lance was involved with Middle Eastern financial groups who wanted him to set up a holding company to direct their capital into banks and other U.S. investments, and Altman is directly quoted as having involvement in the deal's negotiations. The SEC's case was swiftly resolved. However, financial group bank shares consistently thwarted BCCI's advances. After a year-long struggle, a Maryland judge sided with financial group bank shares, declaring the bank could not be acquired via hostile takeovers. This ruling failed to deter BCCI, 
and Clark Clifford positioned three of his trusted associates to act as covert BCCI proxies on the board of Financial Group Bank Shares. One of these individuals was former Senator Stuart Symington, who also chaired a firm based in the Netherlands Antilles named Credit and Commerce American Holdings NV. Credit and Commerce American Holdings stock was owned by various BCCI principals and served as the umbrella entity for Credit and Commerce American Investments. Intriguingly, another man involved in Credit and Commerce American Holdings was Mohammed Rahim Motagi Irvani, an Iranian millionaire and a former business partner of agency director Richard Helms. According to the BCCI affair, Irvani was BCCI's lead frontman in the original takeover of financial group bank shares and had been directly assisted by Richard Helms in this endeavor. This resulted in media speculation surrounding the dealings between Helms and Irvani, as well as serious questions regarding the CIA's knowledge of BCCI's evolution into a criminal enterprise. Helms and Irvani also had interlocking business interests with Roy Carlson, the executive who oversaw Bank of America's 30% purchase of BCCI stock in 1972. In 1975, Carlson left Bank of America to manage Irvani's business operations and later accepted the position of vice president at Richard Helms' consulting firm. According to the BCCI affair, Carlson also had long-standing ties to Aga Abedi and had advised him on the formation of BCCI in 1972. With the formation of another front company under Credit and Commerce American Holdings, BCCI was ultimately able to skirt regulatory restrictions and seize control of financial group bank shares. Clark Clifford and Robert Altman assured regulators that these new purchasers were in no way related to BCCI and, despite the overwhelming evidence that BCCI was the puppet master overseeing this intricate web of proxies, the Federal Reserve and other regulatory services began the approval process. Intriguingly, Catherine Austin Fitz, an experienced investment banker and former assistant secretary in the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development during the Bush administration, was appointed to the Bank Shares Board following BCCI's downfall in 1991. After combing through the trove of documents she now had access to, Fitz stated that there was no way BCCI's clandestine dealings were unknown to the Federal Reserve or the White House. This raises the question, does this awareness reach back to the time BCCI first gained the reins of financial group bank shares? Following BCCI's successful takeover, financial group bank shares was rebranded as First American Bank Shares and an impressive plan for growth was launched. According to Clark Clifford, he wanted First American to be one of the 20 biggest banks in the country, and by 1989, 
the bank boasted a staggering $11.5 billion in assets. Behind the scenes, BCCI continued to weave itself into the fabric of First American. Numerous BCCI subsidiaries opened accounts at First American branches, and Aga Abedi strategically placed BCCI managers throughout First American's top positions. During this time, Abedi also fostered relationships with U.S. politicians and became especially close to President Jimmy Carter. Aga Abedi, along with Adnan Khashoggi and Clark Clifford, became major donors to the Carter Presidential Center, while BCCI itself became a mega-donor to Jimmy Carter's Global 2000 Initiative, a project aimed at third-world development. In an arrangement that raised eyebrows, Abedi was appointed co-chairman of Global 2000, while Jimmy Carter served as the acting chairman. As BCCI's influence in America grew, it became connected to the Chiefs of Police National Drug Task Force, COP, a philanthropic organization that received money from first American bank shares. Intriguingly, COP was headed by Utah Senator Orrin Hatch, who had ties to a number of BCCI principals and defended the bank during its collapse. Another notable figure involved in COP was Randy Anderson, the son of notable journalist Jack Anderson. The board of First American Bank Shares also featured another familiar name, Robert Keith Gray, who took his seat shortly after the bank's rebranding. Seven years later, in 1988, Hill and Knowlton was retained by BCCI following a money laundering indictment levied against the bank in Tampa, Florida. This occurred after Gray had rejoined Hill and Knowlton, and the firm had absorbed Gray & Co. as a subsidiary. The hope was that Hill and Knowlton would be able to rehabilitate BCCI's public image. The consulting firm launched an audacious public relations campaign and disseminated materials discrediting persons and publications whose statements regarding BCCI's criminal activities were later proven accurate. The National Bank of Georgia, the focus of BCCI's initial efforts, also failed to escape BCCI's grasp and was bought by Gaith Farone, the BCCI frontman and associate of Armand Hammer, Despite concerns from the Office of the Comptroller of the Currency, regulators allowed the deal to go through. Roy Carlson, the man who first bridged Bank of America with BCCI, was then handpicked by Abedi to manage the National Bank of Georgia. Several years later, Farone sold the National Bank of Georgia back to First American Bank shares. It should be noted that Farron wielded considerable political clout himself. Prior to rubbing elbows with Bert Lance, Farron had purchased a sizable stake in Houston's main bank. Sharing this investment playground was Saudi billionaire Khaled bin Mahfouz, 
the driving force behind National Commercial Bank. Like Farone, Bin Mahfouz was also deeply enmeshed in BCCI's operations and even owned shares in the bank. In 1986, plans were underway for Bin Mahfouz to take over BCCI and Credit and Commerce American Holdings. However, the deal fell apart after internal auditors for National Commercial Bank raised too many concerns about BCCI's activities and the deal itself. Main Bank of Houston, Texas had its own who's who of influence peddlers and political powerhouses. One notable investor was John Connolly, the former Texas governor who would later be involved in defrauding savings and loans. Another was James R. Bath, a close friend of George W. Bush. According to his ex-partner, Bill White, James Bath was also an agency asset who was personally recruited by George H. W. Bush in 1976 during Bush's tenure as agency director. James Bath was involved in a variety of fields, including aviation, real estate, and finance. He cut his teeth as vice president at the Texas Division of Atlantic Aviation, which was controlled by the influential DuPont family. Later, he co-founded a real estate venture named Bath Benson Interests with Lan Benson, whose father, Lloyd Benson Jr., would serve as Treasury Secretary under Bill Clinton. In 1976, the same year H.W. Bush reportedly brought him in to the agency fold, Bath founded Jim Bath & Associates. Almost immediately following this, Bath's trajectory shifted into high gear. He was named trustee for Sheikh Salem bin Laden, Osama bin Laden's half-brother, handling all of the Sheikh's North American investments and operations. He was also named trustee for Khalid bin Mahfouz's American Investments. According to journalist Russ Baker, Bill White told him that H.W. Bush's decision to recruit James Bath as an asset was intimately influenced by the growing relationship between Saudi Arabian wealth and Texas oil. It would seem that Bath acted as an intermediary between the two worlds and his presence alongside BCCI-linked individuals Khalid bin Mahfouz and Gaith Faron should be viewed in this context. Expanding our scope beyond these relations, BCCI was truly a global enterprise. For example, the bank operated in the People's Republic of China during the era of economic reform and opening up, BCCI became the second foreign bank to plant its flag on Chinese soil. According to the BCCI affair, Chinese officials and their institutions lost around $500 million when the bank collapsed. 
BCCI also maintained joint ventures with other businesses in China, one of which was the China Arab Bank, which was established in partnership with the Abu Dhabi Investment Authority. Additionally, Jimmy Carter personally traveled with Aga Abedi to China in 1987. Carter later acknowledged that his travels with Abedi helped the BCCI president in his business and stated that he has no doubt traveling with a former president of the United States gives any entourage an advantage. BCCI also maintained a murky presence in the Soviet Union. An appendix in the BCCI affair underlines the bank's activities with the foreign trade mission of the Soviet Union in London. While specific details are scant, the report states that obtaining the records of those financial transactions would be critical to understanding what the Soviet Union was doing in the West. Journalists Jonathan Beatty and S.C. Gwynn do provide an intriguing clue in regards to the BCCI-USSR relationship. According to a German arms dealer, the pair refer to as Heinrich, the Soviet Union was acquiring high-level Western technology via BCCI. In the Global South, BCCI fashioned itself as a development bank, an avatar of economic growth. This guise enabled the bank to intertwine itself deep into the governing and financial structures of emerging economies. In the Congo, BCCI was the second largest of all lenders, while in Cameroon, the bank developed close ties to the country's finance ministry and bribed ministry officials in exchange for Cameroon taking high-interest loans from BCCI. The BCCI affair also claims that the bank cultivated relationships with United Nations outposts as well as the U.S. Embassy inside Cameroon. In Nigeria, BCCI cozied up to the country's central bank, and it would seem BCCI officials traveled the globe with the central bank's top financial executives. According to one witness, a BCCI officer handed out cash to the staff of Nigeria's central bank at a World Bank meeting in Seoul, South Korea. In Jamaica, the bank effectively acted as a conduit between the Jamaican government and the global financial system. BCCI reportedly handled every foreign current account of Jamaican government agencies. BCCI also became involved in financing all of Jamaica's commodity imports from the United States via the U.S. Commodity Credit Corporation, CCC. The CCC was later implicated alongside BCCI and several connected banks for transferring armaments and munitions to Iraq at the height of the Iran-Iraq War. BCCI also had a foothold in the global shipping industry, 
this foothold came through the Gulf Group, which was controlled by the Gokul brothers. Aga Abedi cultivated a particularly strong relationship with Abbas Gokul, the main brother overseeing the group. Abedi had courted Abbas early on in BCCI's existence, and the bank offered a series of escalating loans to help the Gulf Group quickly amass an impressive fleet. The two parties grew increasingly interconnected over the years, and when BCCI eventually collapsed, the Gulf Group faced significant destabilization. Abbas Gokul even served as a BCCI frontman on some occasions. In 1975, Abbas attempted to acquire Chelsea National Bank, a small establishment located in New York. Regulators quickly noted his vast lack of expertise or experience in banking, as well as his close ties to BCCI. In 1976, Abbas told regulators that should he acquire the bank, he would bring in a BCCI management team to run the bank's operations. Intriguingly, in the early 80s, Abbas Gokul approached the intelligence-organized crime-linked banker Bruce Rappaport with an offer to buy 50% of Intermaritime Bank. While Rappaport declined this offer, he did sell 19.9% of the bank's shares to the Gulf Group and gave Abbas a seat on the bank's board of directors. After Abbas was imprisoned for his fraudulent activities with BCCI, his personal secretary went on to work for Rappaport. Given Rappaport's own ties to BCCI, it seems likely that Abbas Gokul was acting as a front for BCCI within Rappaport's organization. One of Rappaport's top money managers, Alfred Hartman, was himself a BCCI frontman. Additionally, Rappaport held significant stake in the Bank of New York, a correspondent bank of BCCI. During the BCCI inquiry, Bert Lance testified that he believed Bruce Rappaport had been dispatched by his good friend William Casey to spy on him and keep tabs on BCCI's activities. Rappaport maintained contact with him until Casey's death. According to the BCCI affair, Lance failed to mention that despite his suspicions of Rappaport, he arranged with him to have one of his sons work in the shady financier's New York bank. Bruce Rappaport and BCCI were also engaged in various activities in the oil-rich nation of Oman. BCCI established a presence in the country in 1973 when BCCI and Bank of America set up the National Bank of Oman. According to Peter Truell and Larry Gurin, the National Bank of Oman became one of BCCI's biggest units, with 55 branches. While the BCCI affair suggests that BCCI may have been moving money 
through the National Bank of Oman to fund the war in Afghanistan. The report also states that Kwais al-Zawawi, the CEO of the National Bank of Oman, also did business with Bruce Rapoport. Intriguingly, one of the most active players in Oman's oil market at the time was John Deus, the enigmatic oil man whom Ted Shackley worked for after leaving the CIA. Reportedly, Deus hired Shackley specifically to aid in his Oman operations. According to journalist Susan Mazur, an associate of John Deus, Al-Zawawi was John Deus's primary contact in Oman. Given Shackley's history and the private CIA's activities, his presence raises even more speculation regarding the intelligence community's relationship with the broader BCCI network. Another major player in Oman at the time was Tetra Tech International, the contracting firm ran by James Critchfield, an agency operative and a close friend of Ted Shackley. In 1979, Tetra Tech was given supervisory control over the operations of 11 government ministries, major construction projects, the management of ports, telecommunication infrastructure, the post office, and food inspections are a handful of examples of things under Tetra Tech's control in Oman. Additionally, as noted in the last chapter, Donald Jameson, a CIA veteran who later worked for Tetra Tech, was also an attendee of the Lay Circle meeting tied to the October surprise plot. According to the BCCI affair, investigators also suspected a potential connection between Tetra Tech International and Tetra Finance a Hong Kong-based financial outfit that was closely integrated with the Hong Kong Deposit and Guarantee Company. Intriguingly, John Shaheen, one of William Casey's Hardy Boys and a central figure in the October Surprise Plot, who was discussed in the last chapter, played an active role in each of these institutions. Shaheen was paid to broker deposits and recruit wealthy Arabs for the boards of these banks. Individuals who maintained a post on the board of both banks included Hassan Yassin, Kamal Adham's successor as Saudi intelligence chief and a cousin of Adnan Khashoggi, as well as Al-Mazuri, the head of the Abu Dhabi Investment Authority and a director at BCCI. Once again, BCCI surfaces in the murky world of clandestine warfare being conducted during the 1980s. During the Kerry Commission's investigations into terrorism, narcotics, and international operations, Amjad Awan a senior executive from BCCI, was summoned as a witness. During his testimony, Awan shared that he had acted as personal banker for Panamanian dictator Manuel Noriega.
According to Awan, Noriega would deposit $3 million at a time into BCCI. Awan would then disperse $20,000 payments to Panamanian politicians at Noriega's request. Furthermore, Awan claimed that Robert Altman, Clark Clifford's law partner, had personally participated in concealing the massive influx of Noriega-linked money into BCCI. When BCCI collapsed and regulators began demanding internal bank documents, Altman went as far as concealing subpoenaed evidence by labeling it as attorney work product. Manuel Noriega's wealth was largely due to the Latin American drug trade. According to Carlos Ladere, the Medellin cartel boss who worked closely with Robert Vesco in the Bahamas, Noriega had come to an agreement with Pablo Escobar and other Medellin bosses. This agreement effectively turned Panama into a transshipment point for Colombian cocaine headed to the United States. Noriega ensured safe passage for drug flights at various airstrips in Panama and, in return, received $1,000 for every kilogram of cocaine as well as a cut from every dollar of drug money deposited into Panamanian banks. Stephen Kalish, an American drug trafficker who collaborated closely with Cesar Rodriguez, Noriega's personal pilot, would later corroborate some of Ladere's claims. According to Kalish, Noriega had won the trust of Medellin cartels by arranging the release of several Colombians who had been arrested during a raid on a cocaine processing plant. It is possible that Kalish made this claim based on first-hand knowledge. While searching for suitable laundering operations, Kalish had been personally introduced to Noriega through Cesar Rodriguez. After leaving Noriega a case filled with $300,000 cash, the first of several such payments, Kalish became a full partner in Services Turisticos, an airline owned by Rodriguez, Noriega, and another smuggler. He also got special military protection for shipments of money into the country as well as a Panamanian diplomatic passport. Noriega was also deeply connected to American intelligence. Beginning in 1967, he acted as an asset for the CIA and developed a particularly close relationship with George H.W. Bush during the president's tenure as agency director. According to Peter Dell Scott, and Jonathan Marshall, in 1976, agency director George Bush arranged to pay Noriega $110,000 a year, as well as host the Panamanian dictator as a house guest of an agency deputy director and 
helped to prevent an embarrassing prosecution of several American soldiers who had delivered highly classified U.S. intelligence to Noriega's men. The agency payments to Noriega were conveniently deposited into Noriega's accounts at BCCI. The dictator maintained a similar relationship with William Casey during his tenure as agency director and the two men met alone on multiple occasions. Noriega's roles as both de facto drug lord and CIA point man became an issue for the United States in the early 1980s, particularly once William Casey launched the first operations to support the Contras against the ruling Sandinistas in Nicaragua. During the late 1980s, various journalists began reporting these operations under the code name Black Eagle. According to a 1989 Rolling Stone expose written by Howard Cohn and Vicki Monks, these operations were not officially sanctioned by the CIA or any other government agency. They were the instruments of a secret U.S. foreign policy carried out by men who constituted a form of shadow government. Noriega had been brought into the Black Eagle operation by Mossad operatives. Indeed, it had been Casey's idea to use the Israelis to arrange for the acquisition and shipping of weapons to the Contras as a way of distancing American officials and agents from the Black Eagle operation. The Mossad provided cover and gave the American operatives plausible deniability. As noted in the last chapter, Mossad's Panamanian point man at the time was Michael Harari, an Israeli intelligence officer, arms trafficker, and security consultant to Manuel Noriega. The Harari network, as it was later dubbed, also intersected with the Medellin drug smuggling operations in Panama. While Harari had ostensibly retired from the intelligence community, an ABC News investigative report claimed that Israel had financed Harari's network to the tune of $20 million. Jose Blandon, one of Noriega's top advisors, later divulged that Harari collaborated with Duane Claridge, the chief of agency operations in Latin America, as well as Donald Gregg, the national security advisor to then-Vice President Bush, to establish a network of bases that could provide logistical support to the Contras. Cone and Monk's Rolling Stone expose seems to corroborate Blandone's story. They write that the vice president's office was a primary node in the Black Eagle operation and that Donald Gregg was indeed their man on the ground. Additionally, the pair add that the Panamanian airstrips utilized by the CIA were the same airstrips being used by the Medellin cartels for drug smuggling operations, and that Israeli intelligence had served as intermediary between the U.S. and Noriega during these early Contra support efforts. 
During 1982 and 1983, both the U.S. and Israel were notably active on the international stage. In November 1982, the U.S. openly acknowledged backing rebel forces in Nicaragua. By March of 1983, the agency had established $50 million worth of intelligence infrastructure in Latin America, which was primarily focused on Nicaragua. Furthermore, U.S. military consultants were placed in Honduras to advise Fuerza Democrática de Nicaragua, FDN. In the summer of 1983, the New York Times reported that Israel, at the behest of the United States, was trafficking arms to the Contras. These arms had been previously seized from the Palestine Liberation Organization in Lebanon. In 1984 and 1985, Operation Black Eagle began to fall apart, thanks in no small part to Manuel Noriega. According to Cohn and Monks, while helping to raise funds for the Contras, Noriega was pursuing a favorite pastime, adding to his store of potential political blackmail material. An insatiable collector of negative information about both friends and foes, Noriega is known to have hidden video and audio equipment in government offices to record meetings and phone calls. According to Jose Blandon, early in the Black Eagle operation, Noriega began to compile a dossier regarding the role of H.W. Bush and his staff. In the dossier is said to be copies of status reports sent to Donald Gregg and videotapes of meetings held in Noriega's office, plus a special report that Blandone prepared about Black Eagle on Noriega's orders. Noriega's increasingly bold actions stoked the unease between U.S. and Israeli operatives in Latin America. It would seem that both sides suspected the other would hang them to dry should the link between the Contra support efforts and Medellin drug trafficking be revealed. Declining domestic support for the Contra war efforts further complicated matters. Beginning in 1982, a series of legislative acts were ratified limiting the Reagan administration's capacity to assist the Contras through military means. This culminated in the 1984 Boland Amendment, which prohibited any military aid to the Contras and hampered the agency's Nicaraguan operations. Faced with these new restrictions, William Casey was hard-pressed to find an alternative system for facilitating their covert war. Soon, with the aid of his protege, Oliver North, a covert operation dubbed the Enterprise was birthed. The Enterprise appears to have been aptly named as it was fundamentally a money-making endeavor with tendrils interwoven in as many business ventures as covert operations. This sprawling network was also closely tied to, if not an outright extension of, 
Ted Shackley's private intelligence apparatus. Richard Secord, who was previously involved in the Pentagon's overbilling scheme that funneled funds to EATSCO, was a top player in managing the enterprise's financial network. Other Shackley associates involved with the enterprise included Albert Hakim and Thomas Kleins. Intriguingly, the Arms for Hostage deals, which ultimately torpedoed the enterprise, originated during a meeting between Shackley and Iranian representatives. The plans then went through a convoluted series of handovers before eventually landing on Oliver North's desk. Lieutenant Colonel Oliver North is being called a renegade cowboy who broke the law by his critics, but to American conservatives, he's a leader who saved Grenada and El Salvador from communism and who was working to do the same thing in Nicaragua and possibly even Iran. He is um, respected by... Uh, the conservative movement because he put meat on the bones of rhetoric uh, that Ronald Reagan has been saying for years. I know Ollie. I think he's a bona fide American hero. Might say, well, he's loyal to a fault. Well, the president is, is a man who needs all the help he can get. He's been badly served by most of the people in his administration. North, who made his mark as a man of action on the international stage, has been offered a desk job by the Marine Corps, but some associates say they expect him to go to work for the Central Intelligence Agency. Supporters say North is being advised not to talk to reporters by the Marine Corps, the White House, and by his lawyer, so it's likely he'll continue to stay out of sight. But those same supporters say despite the foreign policy crisis his actions have precipitated, when all the facts are in, Oliver North will emerge as a man who broke no laws in helping his president. And had so many great successes in a row that maybe he began to see himself as uh, the final arbiter of tough decisions. He'll be exonerated and uh, people will wind up upon closer examination of his accomplishments realizing a political mistake was made in jettisoning him and um, that he should be honored as an American hero. John Holloman. CNN, Washington. Oliver North cut his teeth as a Marine during the Vietnam War and was apparently recruited into Ted Shackley's network during the early 1980s. In 1981, he took a position within the National Security Council and in 1983, during the height of Black Eagle's operations, was appointed as the National Security Council's Deputy Director for Political Military Affairs. During that two-year period, North served under Robert Bud McFarlane, Ronald Reagan's National Security Advisor. Much of McFarlane's professional trajectory was due to his ability to cultivate and nurture connections to prominent players. For example, he had served as a military aide to Henry Kissinger and accompanied him on multiple secret visits to China. In the late 1970s, Senator John Tower appointed McFarlane to lead the U.S. Senate Committee on Armed Services. In 1981, he also served 
as Alexander Haig's personal assistant. Joseph Trento gives an insight into these interconnected alliances and mentorships. He notes that McFarlane's initial position under Henry Kissinger was facilitated by his mentor, Colonel Jack Brennan, Richard Nixon's final chief of staff. Throughout the years, Brennan and McFarlane remained connected, at some point leading to North's introduction to Brennan's colleague, Lieutenant Colonel James M. Tully. James Tully maintained strong ties to Ted Shackley and Richard Secord. According to Trento, William Corson, a Marine colonel and occasional agency asset, stated that North was developing strong ties within this network of individuals being used to execute off-the-books operations for the CIA and the National Security Council. Reflecting on these revelations, Corson reportedly commented, It was then that I realized what had happened. These dumb bastards got sucked into the old Ed Wilson crowd. Shackley, Richard Secord, Thomas Kleins. The administration had let these guys in the tent, and it was only a matter of time before they owned the circus. The basis for the enterprise was Stanford Technology Trading Group International, STTGI, a company founded by Richard Secord and Albert Hakim in 1983. STTGI was one node in a string of similarly named ventures, which included entities like Stanford Technology Corporation, Stan Tech Services, SciTech, and more. In 1984, North introduced Secord to Adolfo Salero, the leader of the CIA-favored FDN. This connection resulted in an arrangement wherein Saudi Arabia donated large sums of cash which would allow STTGI to buy arms and then resell them to the Contras. The enterprise's arms efforts grew increasingly successful during 1985 and 1986. Throughout 1985, Manuchair Gorbanifar, David Kimchi, and Michael Ledeen met on multiple occasions to discuss a potential deal involving the Reagan administration, Israel, and Iran. By the end of August, these efforts bore fruit and a U.S. arms package, which included 100 tow missiles, was dispatched to Iran via Israel. The initial financing for this deal was provided by Adnan Khashoggi and was routed through the arms dealers' accounts at BCCI. At this time, Michael Ledeen 
was operating out of Oliver North's office at the National Security Council, though he later asserted that North was unaware of the arms dealings and was largely preoccupied with freeing the American hostages being held in Lebanon. In early September, President Reagan was informed of Israel's proactive arms-for-hostage deal with Iran. According to Reagan's chief of staff, Donald Reagan, Reagan was not pleased with the news after McFarlane explained that the Israelis had simply taken it upon themselves to do this, though he ultimately decided to leave it alone. Shortly after this arms deal, David Kimchi informed Robert McFarlane that a hostage would soon be released, with more to come. Records show that Oliver North was tasked with receiving and debriefing the hostage. By October, North was holding meetings with Michael Ledeen, Manusher Gorbanifar, and Al Schwimmer, the longtime arms merchant and special advisor to Israeli Prime Minister Shimon Perez, as well as other key players on the Israeli side of the operation in Washington, D.C. The arms transfers between Israel and Iran ran smoothly for the next few months. However, in January 1986, a new opportunity emerged. In a pivotal meeting between Oliver North, Attorney General Edwin Meese, and Amaram Nir, the leading counterterrorism advisor to Shimon Perez, Nir reportedly proposed that proceeds from these arms cells be diverted to the Contras. Shortly after this meeting, funds destined for the Contras began moving through the enterprise's Byzantine network of shell corporations and dummy companies. The enterprise largely utilized Swiss banks such as Credit Suisse. Core accounts for receiving and dispersing funds included Energy Resources International, Lake Resources Incorporated, and Hyde Park Square Corporation. In order to manage this complex network, the enterprise enlisted the services of Willard Zucker and the Geneva-based Compagni de Services Fiduciari, CSF. Zucker, an American tax lawyer, had provided Albert Hakim with financial services since the mid-1970s, when Hakim still resided in Iran. Zucker's association becomes particularly intriguing given his history. He once had ties to investors' overseas services, which was discussed in the previous episode, and was also a sitting board member when Bernie Kornfeld was ousted from the company. While unverified, rumors suggest that Zucker had been appointed to the board at the behest of Robert Vesco, and that Zucker 
had acted as a proxy for Vesco in return. Briefly expanding on Zucker's relationship with iOS and Robert Vesco, in July 1986, Zucker penned a letter to Albert Hakim regarding STTGI and a series of meetings he held with Enterprise Partners in Seattle, Washington. One of these partners was also involved in business ventures with John M. King, a politically connected oil man, and offered to provide Zucker with materials related to the venture, though Zucker declined the man's offer. In his letter, Zucker explained to Hakim that John King hates my guts because I helped bring down King Resources. King Resources was once a major client of IOS, and the pair were involved in oil and gas ventures during the late 1960s. During this time, John King developed a close association with Edward Cowett, who held pivotal roles within the IOS executive team and served as general counsel, director, and executive team member at various points. When IOS began to crumble, Cowett conspired with King to wrest control of IOS from Bernie Kornfeld. As we know, their attempt failed. King's enterprise, King Resources, plummeted into bankruptcy as a result, and King's rival, Robert Vesco, seized control of IOS. According to Willard Zucker's letter, it would seem he played a significant role in these endeavors. Returning to the Enterprise, in June of 1982, the Geneva-based company Compagni de Services Fiduciari CSF established a Bermuda-based subsidiary named CSF Investments Limited. The legal work for this company was outsourced to Conyers, Dill, and Pearman, a firm specializing in offshore finance with offices across the Caribbean, London, and Hong Kong. The firm's founders, Nicholas Bayard Dill, a significant figure in Bermuda's political sphere, and James Pearman, were both directors at Coastal Caribbean Oils and Minerals Limited. Intriguingly, Richard Secord reportedly held some shares in this very company during the early 1980s. CSF Investments Limited would later play a crucial role in acquiring aircraft for the Contra support efforts. In fact, the enterprise established and maintained numerous companies to facilitate the aviation wing of the Contra support efforts. Southern Air Transport, the CIA proprietary airline that was previously Air America and before that 
Civil Air Transport worked closely with an enterprise shell company named Alban Values Corporation in Panama. According to journalist David Rogers, public records in Panama City list employees from the Geneva firm CSF as principals in Alban Values Corporation. Notably, Roland Farina, a CSF accountant, and Jacques Mossaz, a Swiss attorney, are cited as the primary officers in Alban Values. The company's registration was facilitated by Quiano and Associados, a Panama City legal firm that frequently collaborated with CSF. According to Rogers, Richard Secord oversaw this complex corporate network. Outside of Panama, Costa Rica emerged as a major staging ground for Oliver North's pro-contra operations. The centerpiece of this airlift operation was a tract of land owned by American rancher and narcotics trafficker John Hull. In exchange for using his land, Hull received a monthly stipend of $10,000 from the enterprise and later proclaimed that he had been the CIA's primary link to the Contras between 1982 and 1986. According to Peter Dell Scott and Jonathan Marshall, Hull's land had been used for covert operations prior to the Contra airlift efforts. In 1980, an Argentinian unit working with the Contras had utilized his ranch to orchestrate an assault on a left-wing Costa Rican radio station. Hull was also reportedly close to the Free Costa Rica movement, Costa Rica's branch of the World Anti-Communist League, as well as the local CIA station. An associate of John Hull named Robert Owen was also handpicked to serve as his liaison with the Contras. According to Susan Trento, Owen was a connected player who had ties to Ted Shackley. Robert's brother, Dewey Owen, had been killed in action in Vietnam while working for the agency during the same time Shackley was serving as station chief for the AO. Through Shackley, Owen was also acquainted with Neil Livingstone. Given Livingstone's involvement with Michael Harari in Panama, it is possible that Livingstone was aware of and involved in Operation Black Eagle. At the very least, Livingstone had personally recruited Robert Owen into Gray & Co., the public relations firm founded by Robert Keith Gray during his absence from H&K. Under the auspices of a Contra public relations campaign, Livingstone established a nonprofit organization named the Institute for Terrorism and Subnational Conflict, 
which operated out of the offices of the American Security Council in Washington, D.C. According to the D.C. Court of Appeals final report for Iran-Contra matters, North utilized this nonprofit as a cutout to pay Robert Owen's salary and described Owen as North's personal courier to the Contras. In order to receive these funds, Owen created two sister entities, the Institute for Democracy, Education, and Assistance, as well as the Council for Democracy, Education, and Assistance. One of the directors for the Council for Democracy, Education, and Assistance was retired Air Force General John Flynn, who was reportedly recruited for the position by John Hull. The council received some $66,000 in donations for the Contras, all of which was credited to the fundraising efforts of conservative activist Carl Spitz Chanel. In 1984, Chanel organized a tax-exempt foundation tailored to soliciting donations named the National Endowment for the Preservation of Liberty. Chanel's partner in this endeavor was Richard Miller, a public relations man who operated a company named International Business Communications. This foundation became Oliver North's preferred avenue for amassing private donations in support of the Contras, as well as other global freedom fighters championed by the Reagan administration. Through the National Endowment for the Preservation of Liberty, North and his associates funneled donations from wealthy donors into Miller's International Business Communications. From there, the funds were transferred to bank accounts in the Cayman Islands under the moniker IC Incorporated. The money was then routed to the enterprise's Swiss bank accounts held under Lake Resources. Another fundraising apparatus at the enterprise's disposal was Citizens for America. Citizens for America was established by conservative stalwart Louis Lerman, although for a time was under the management of now infamous lobbyist Jack Abramoff. Intriguingly, Citizens for America will reappear in connection with the Franklin scandal. According to John DeCamp, Lawrence King, the central figure in the trafficking and child abuse ring, was a founding member and major donor of Citizens for America during the Contra years. Additionally, DeCamp reports of a former King security guard swearing that he witnessed Oliver North at at least one party hosted by Lawrence King. The security guard stated that children were present at the party. However, 
he was stationed outside of the establishment and has no knowledge of what occurred inside. As 1985 progressed, the Boland Amendment, which had previously restricted certain forms of aid to the Contras, began to show signs of vulnerability. While Congress continued to prohibit the provision of lethal aid, it did allow the State Department to move humanitarian supplies to the Contras. Seizing this opportunity, the enterprise facilitated the establishment of the Nicaraguan Humanitarian Assistance Office, NHAO. Under the guidance of Ambassador Robert Dwemling, NHAO funneled funds to Robert Owens Institute for Democracy, Education, and Assistance, and Owen soon became a consultant for the NHAO. Intriguingly, the CIA vetted and recommended the cargo carriers the NHAO contracted for shipping aid to the Contras. This process resulted in the hiring of some rather intriguing organizations. Among them were Frigoríficos de Pontoreñas and its sister company, Ocean Hunter. As previously discussed, Frigoríficos reportedly paid for Robert Vesco's hangar fees in Costa Rica and was ran by representatives of Colombian drug cartels. A principal of both companies, Luis Rodriguez, was identified by the FBI as having funded the Contras through narcotics transactions. During the same period, the State Department was unlocking funds for frigoríficos. Top executives were deeply entrenched in the blossoming cocaine trade and also working closely with Oliver North, Robert Owen, and John Hull to develop maritime warfare capabilities for the Contras. Memos written by Owen refer to frigoríficos and ocean hunter vessels as motherships for these strategic operations. The memo also references a DEA agent who might help with the boats. Another intriguing pair of companies were Setco Aviation and Hondu Carib both of which received funds from the NHAO, were tapped by the enterprise for military support and were implicated in drug trafficking operations. Hondu Carib was formed by Frank Moss, a former SETCO pilot. According to the Kerry Commission, SETCO had a long-standing relationship with the Honduras-based FDN, the largest of the Contra groups. This aviation company was founded by Honduran cocaine trafficker Juan Mata Ballesteros. Often described as the boss of bosses in Mexico's cocaine industry, Ballesteros was primarily affiliated 
with the Cali Cartel, which by the 1990s had overtaken the Medellin Cartel as the dominant drug empire in Colombia. Mata Ballesteros and other members of his organization were implicated in the kidnapping, interrogation, brutal torture, and murder of DEA agent Enrique Kiki Camarena, which took place in February of 1985. According to a prosecution witness in the Camarena case, the cartel boss who greenlit Camarena's murder, Felix Gallardo, boasted that he supplied arms to the Contras and that he had formed an alliance of drug traffickers in 1983 and 1984 to finance the Contras in exchange for protection. Camarena was initially captured by members of the DFS, a now-shuttered Gestapo-like Mexican intelligence agency, following a DEA raid that relied heavily on intelligence provided by Camarena. When Felix Gallardo boasted of his ties to the Contras, he also claimed that Contra units were being trained at a law enforcement facility maintained by the DFS, which was actually acting as a front for the CIA. Additionally, according to Phil Jordan, the former director of the DEA's El Paso Intelligence Center, he was later informed by Mexican counterparts that CIA operatives were present during the interrogation and torture of Camarena and had videotaped the agent's final hours. Hector Bareyes, the lead DEA investigator into the Camarena case, confirmed the existence of these tapes and stated that the CIA had in fact provided them to the DEA. Given these allegations, one can't help but wonder if Camarena's murder was gangland retribution or an agency initiative to find out what Camarena had witnessed regarding the CIA's efforts to arm and train the Contras during his raids on the cartel. Two more cargo companies vetted by the CIA and employed by the NHAO included Vortex and Summit Aviation. Vortex was a Miami-based aviation company ran by Michael B. Palmer. According to the Kerry Commission, at the time Vortex was receiving NHAO funds, the FBI was investigating Palmer in three separate jurisdictions for his involvement in drug trafficking, and a federal grand jury in Detroit was preparing to indict him. Another Vortex employee at the time, Joseph Haas, was also a suspected drug trafficker, but more importantly was a CIA contract agent who had been taken off the payroll in 1987 
after Haas had gone to work for a U.S. law enforcement agency. Vortex had been brought to the attention of the NHAO by Pat Foley. According to the Kerry Commission, Foley was the president of Summit Aviation. However, what the commission failed to report was that Foley was an agency operative who had flown 747s on behalf of Flying Tiger Lines, the aviation company founded by the Chenaults and inhabited by individuals such as Robert Keith Gray. Summit Aviation had been originally founded by Richard DuPont Jr. Richard DuPont Jr. also served as director at Edward DuPont's Atlantic Aviation, where James R. Bath, the CIA asset and Bush family ally, served as vice president. In September 1983, a Cessna 404 twin-engine plane launched a small bombing run on the Nicaraguan capital. The Sandinistas quickly shot the plane down, and a subsequent investigation revealed the aircraft had launched from somewhere in Costa Rica. U.S. press later revealed that the aircraft belonged to Investor Leasing Corporation, which was headed by a former vice president of the CIA proprietary airline Intermountain Aviation. Intriguingly, before the aircraft's final ill-fated flight, the Cessna had been purchased and retrofitted for ordnance and machine guns by Summit Aviation. The Cessna bombing was one in a series of bold activities orchestrated by the Enterprise. Another example is found in Civilian Material Assistance, CMA, a militia organization that was a suspected front for the 20th Special Forces Group. CMA maintained an active Contra support network and conducted cross-border joint raids with Contra forces from Honduras into Nicaragua. CMA's activities were exposed in 1984 when one of their helicopters was shot down during a Contra raid on the Santa Clara Military Training School, killing two CMA volunteers, Dana Parker and Jimmy Powell. Despite this, Thomas Posey, CMA's head, continued CMA's Contra support efforts and was linked to arms deals being conducted on John Hull's ranch. A close collaborator of CMA and the Enterprise was General John K. Singlob, an associate of Ted Shackley and the private CIA. Singlob entered the world of covert warfare while serving alongside the likes of Paul Helliwell and E. Howard Hunt in the OSS China Theater. Following this, Singlob found himself in the service of the CIA acting as a clandestine operator in special operations around the world.
However, in the late 1970s, he departed a high-ranking military position in protest of the Carter administration's policies. By the 1980s, Singlob found himself at the helm of the U.S. Council for World Freedom, the American arm of a network of spies, criminals, exiled Nazis, fascist operators, and death squad leaders belonging to the World Anti-Communist League. In 1984, Singlob climbed the ranks and became chairman of the entire league. Prior to Singlob's ascension, notable former chairmen included Roger Pearson and Pierre Schifferly. Roger Pearson, an anthropologist, was linked to extremist groups and associated with Willis Carto's Liberty Lobby. Pierre Schifferly, a Swiss attorney with an enigmatic presence, was implicated in massive weapons deals for UNITA in Angola. When Schifferly wasn't falsifying end-user certificates for arms transfers, he brushed elbows with a group known as the Pinochet Foundation and served as one of Bruce Rappaport's attorneys representing the interests of Intermaritime Bank. The World Anti-Communist League and the U.S. Council for World Freedom were interwoven with a host of like-minded pressure groups, dark money fronts, and private intelligence networks. Their agenda was explicit. Roll back Cold War policies, amplify defense spending, and proliferate covert warfare globally. Additionally, they championed trade policies that benefited multinational corporations at the expense of civil liberties and labor rights. One of their partner organizations, the American Security Council, had deep ties to the agency and participated in high-level propaganda operations aimed at the domestic population. Others, such as the Council for National Policy, brokered relationships between evangelical Christians and the emerging New Right, while High Frontier advocated for the Strategic Defense Initiative and the U.S. Strategy Council connected intelligence operatives with the Unification Church in order to coordinate policies and public relations activities, particularly through the Unification Church-controlled Washington Times. Another entity intertwined with the World Anti-Communist League was Western Goals Foundation, a private intelligence outfit established by Congressman Larry McDonald in 1978. McDonald conceived the foundation as a clearinghouse for intelligence, working in tandem with private organizations and law enforcement agencies to amass and disseminate information on domestic groups deemed threatening to the prevailing power structures. The foundation engaged in propaganda efforts via book publishing 
and at one point solicited funds to create a database on American subversives. During the 1980s, Western goals fell under the control of Carl Chanel, who transformed the foundation into a private fundraising vehicle for Cadre support efforts. Western Goals Advisory Board was home to a list of intriguing figures. According to a 1983 correspondence, the board included John Singlob, Thomas Moore, and Roy Cohn. According to the New York Times, Cohn joined the foundation after being assured that it had no ties to the John Birch Society despite the fact that Larry McDonald was an executive board member at the Society. It is possible that Cohn's interest in Western goals was directly tied to the wider pro-contra networks developing during the early 1980s. During this period, Cohn was serving as attorney to Australian-born media mogul Rupert Murdoch, who, according to Robert Perry, had developed a close personal relationship with Cohn based on mutual support for Israel. According to New York Magazine, Cohn's influence with Murdoch was substantial. Whenever Roy wanted a story stopped, an item put in, or a story exploited, Roy called Murdoch. After Murdoch acquired the New York Post, Cohn wielded the newspaper as his personal shiv. At the same time, Cohn was nurturing a close relationship with Charles Wick, the director of the U.S. Information Agency. In late 1982, William Casey was spearheading an illegal propaganda campaign designed to cultivate support for Reagan's hardline policies in Central America. In order to skirt their own legal constraints, the agency outsourced the campaign to the private sector, and Charles Wick was brought on board to secure private funding. Within days of Wick's involvement, Roy Cohn personally brought Rupert Murdoch to the White House for a meeting with Ronald Reagan and Charles Wick. According to Robert Perry, documents released during the Iran-Contra scandal and later from the Reagan Library indicate that Murdoch was soon viewed as a source of private funding for Casey's propaganda campaign. It would also seem that this relationship was the crucial stepping stone that allowed Murdoch to expand his U.S. media holdings, ultimately establishing the Fox Broadcasting Corporation in 1987. Returning our attention to John Singlob, the general was named as a consultant to Geomilitech Consultants Corporation, GMT, a Florida-based company orchestrated by Barbara Studley, a beauty queen turned conservative talk show host. Studley had also worked at the Pentagon and occasionally moonlighted as a lobbyist. 
According to the National Security Archives, Studley may have even established GMT at the behest of Singlob, as he reportedly encouraged Studley to found the company in 1983. During its lifetime, GMT collaborated with a number of arms dealers to source and traffic weapons to conflict zones such as Nicaragua and Afghanistan. One rather intriguing individual involved with GMT was Samuel Cummings, an agency arms trafficker involved in Iran-Contra. Cummings was also the brother-in-law of Senator John Tower. In December 1986, Ronald Reagan tapped John Tower to oversee the initial inquiry into the Iran-Contra affair, despite this clear conflict of interest. By this point, Tower was also in the pocket of Robert Maxwell and Israeli intelligence, reportedly receiving $200,000 a year in exchange for his services. Given the involvement of these networks, it's not entirely surprising that GMT had its own ties to the Israeli state. The company's vice president, Ron Harel, was a veteran of the Israeli Air Force who specialized in tactical cargo and light and early warning aircraft. He directly oversaw GMT's overseas offices, which were located in Tel Aviv. A sister company of GMT, Global Technologies Limited, was also stationed in Israel and was overseen by Joel Arnon, an Israeli diplomat and military officer who concurrently served as executive vice president of GMT alongside Ron Harrell. Global Technologies was based out of Tel Aviv's Asia House, an impressive building that also housed various diplomats and embassies. Asia House had been owned by Israeli billionaire Shaul Eisenberg, who was mentioned in Chapter 3 for his ties to the Israeli intelligence and security apparatus. Intriguingly, GMT's Israeli operations utilized the services of Israel Discount Bank. Reportedly, portions of the funds provided to Frigoríficos de Punta Reñas and Ocean Hunter were deposited in accounts at Israel Discount Bank. It would also appear a direct link exists between GMT and the world of Robert Maxwell. This link is found in Nicholas Davies, the globe-trotting foreign editor for Maxwell's Daily Mirror, whom Maxwell personally nicknamed Mr. Sneaky. According to Ari Ben-Manashi, a former member of Israel's military intelligence directorate, Davies was recruited by Mossad in the 1970s through former SAS officer Anthony 
Pearson, who, at the time, ran an international espionage service named Strategic Intelligence Services. By the 1980s, Davies, with Maxwell's knowledge, was using his duties at the Daily Mirror as a front to cover his involvement in Mossad-sanctioned arms trafficking. Besides his prominent role at the Daily Mirror, Davies also managed and represented the Aura Group, a London-based Israeli company that operated from Davies' London residence. The Aura Group was formed with direct assistance from Ari Ben-Manashi and became a crucial node in the global arms trade. It was through Davies and the Aura Group that GMT was able to acquire Soviet bloc arms on behalf of the CIA. In Profits of War, Ben Menashe provides a number of internal documents exposing Davies' role and communications between Aura and GMT. Davies vehemently refuted Ben Menashe's claims, and the Daily Mirror launched a counteroffensive claiming that the documents in question were forgeries. Davies particularly went out of his way to contest that he had traveled to Ohio to meet with arms dealers, claiming he had never stepped foot in Ohio, though investigative journalists quickly revealed that this was a lie. The British Observer also uncovered other Aura-related documents that included a telex from Davies' to renowned American arms merchant Richard Brennick. As previously discussed, Brennick managed an offshore financial network that was utilized by American and Israeli intelligence assets involved in Operation Black Eagle. Brennick would later confirm that he knew Davies quite well but that Davies had not met him under his guise as a Daily Mirror journalist. Like all other strange and shady organizations that involved themselves with networks surrounding the Enterprise or Robert Maxwell, GMT was involved in the complex world of offshore banking. In order to carry out GMT's operations, Barbara Studley sought the expertise of Jean de la Girade, a managing director at Geneva's Banque Contrade, which was a subsidiary of the Union Bank of Switzerland. Studley and Girade then established Consolentia Limited, a secretive entity that GMT principles were instructed to never keep records of. In the summer of 1985, GMT was involved in an arms deal, likely through the Aura Group, on behalf of the Contras. According to the National Security Archives, Studley and Singlob arranged a $5 million shipment of AK-47s and RPGs from Europe to Honduras 
on board a 15-ton Greek freighter. It's likely that these arms were sourced from Eastern Bloc countries like Poland or Bulgaria. According to the Congressional Report on Iran-Contra, Barbara Studley wrote to Oliver North in October of that year complaining that another arms dealer, Mario Delamico, who was associated with Florida arms dealer Ron Martin, was encroaching on their Soviet sources. Several weeks later, in December, Studley and General Daniel Graham, the vice chairman of Singlob's U.S. Council for World Freedom, attended a meeting with agency director William Casey. According to congressional testimony, a former CIA officer was present at this meeting and was questioned by congressional investigators in regards to what was being discussed. Congressional investigators were particularly interested in a complex trade agreement wherein a trading company, undoubtedly GMT, would supply freedom fighters. Israel would sell military equipment to the People's Republic of China, who would in turn supply Soviet arms, which were then brokered to the freedom fighters, and Israel would be rewarded by the United States through high technological support or other means. A schematic outline of this arrangement was entered as official evidence and reveals these arms were to be distributed at U.S. discretion in Afghanistan, Angola, Nicaragua, and Cambodia. It would seem that GMT was propositioning William Casey with plans for a multinational economic agreement that would bind America, Israel, and China through a series of credit extensions, tech transfers, and arms deals. While the official narrative suggests that this intricate arrangement remained an unfulfilled vision, there are strong indications that elements of this plan were indeed set in motion. Increasing economic and political ties between Israel and China, plus collaboration in U.S. covert operations, mainly the arming of the Mujahideen in Afghanistan, lend weight to this assertion. Prior to this proposal, GMT had one more noteworthy claim to fame in the arms world. According to Alan Block, Israel authorized GMT to present a plan to Korea, who was acting as a cutout for Iran that involved 200 tanks provided by Israel in exchange for Iran's fleet of U.S.-built F-14 fighter jets. Through a complex system of traffickers, cutouts, and banks, the deal ultimately went through and left Barbara Studley to simply state, happy days. It is possible that the success of this operation 
even influenced the later arms-for-hostage arrangements. GMT also worked closely with Israel aircraft industry, Adolf Al-Schwimmer's defense contracting organization. Schwimmer had been heavily involved in weapons deals with Iran during the Shah's rule and continued these arrangements in secret after the Islamic Revolution. According to various Israeli press reports, Schwimmer had been the original mastermind behind trading arms in exchange for the release of one of the hostages, CIA Station Chief William Buckley. Shifting our focus back to the Byzantine financial networks surrounding this world. The enterprise utilized another set of banks named Republic National Bank, which was headquartered in New York City, as well as Trade Development Bank, which was headquartered in Geneva. Both of these banks were controlled by the Lebanese-Brazilian billionaire Edmond Safra, who died in 1999 under suspicious circumstances following his bank's implication in large-scale money laundering and the possible theft of stabilization credits provided to Russia by the IMF. Over a decade earlier, Safra's Republic National Bank was implicated, though never indicted, in another money laundering network known as La Mina. This network was the subject of a sweeping federal investigation named Operation Polar Cap. La Mina's primary objective was to wash money for Colombian cartels and utilized a daisy chain of banks, mines, gold refineries, precious metal brokers, and jewelry stores. It also provided financial infrastructure for maritime and airborne transportation that was then utilized for drug trafficking. Unsurprisingly, BCCI's presence is found in this network as well. The bank was a node in the La Mina daisy chain, and loyal BCCI customers such as fraudster Altar Nazarali frequently did business with Safra's trade development bank. According to the D.C. Court of Appeals final report of the Independent Council for Iran-Contra Matters, Republic National Bank handled many of the enterprise's wire transfers and was further involved in a cash delivery system that took place outside official bank channels. Nancy Moravia, an officer at Republic National Bank, as well as her husband, Elliot, and their son, David, were all utilized by the enterprise's money manager, Willard Zucker, to make cash drops to Albert Hakim, Richard Secord, and others 
on their behalf. Beginning in early 1985, Zucker would inform Nancy who needed money and how much. Nancy would relay this information to Elliot, who accumulated the cash, and then either he or their son, David, would deliver the money. Zucker would then wire money from Enterprise accounts to an account named Coddles at the Trade Development Bank, which coincidentally was controlled by Edgar and Eli Mizrahi, who were family friends of the Moravias. Sometimes these money drops took place directly at Republic National and on at least one occasion, Robert Owen personally received $7,000 from Moravia at the bank in New York City. An FBI 302 on Nancy Moravia quotes her stating that she knew Zucker for approximately 8 to 10 years and that his account at Republic National was already established when she began working in the international section. She added that Edmond Safra had contact with Zucker in Geneva and, though she was not able to identify any potential business relations between Safra and Zucker, she made it clear that she assumed that such business did actually take place. Intriguingly, a direct business link between Compagni des Services Fiduciari, CSF, and First Republic does exist. In the summer of 1985, CSF organized a Geneva-based company on behalf of Republic National named Republic New York Corporation Air Transport Services, S.A. The purpose of this company was to maintain a private aircraft on behalf of Safra's bank, but by the end of 1985, the contract between CSF and Republic National was terminated. Aero Leasing S.A., a Swiss aviation company, which originally provided the jet for purchase, continued to maintain and operate the plane on behalf of Republic National. It would also seem that Aero Leasing was directly employed by the Enterprise. Within the Congressional Iran-Contra report, an Enterprise expenditures list names Aero Leasing as having received $226,998. Other intriguing expenditures in this section include payments of $12,237,000 to CIA for arms, $732,250 to Israel, $1,151,000 to Southern Air Transport, 
$127,700 to CIA Proprietary Airline and $260,000 to advance to Richard Secord. During his congressional testimony, Richard Secord was asked whether his involvement with the Iran-Contra operations benefited him financially. During his answer, he confirmed their dealings with these companies, stating, We owe an aero leasing firm in Europe about $60,000 and Southern Air Transport just under $100,000. Additionally, Gordon Thomas and Martin Dillon, in their biography of Robert Maxwell, state that Safra and Maxwell were long-standing friends and frequently enjoyed dining on board Maxwell's Lady Ghislaine whenever the yacht docked opposite Safra's home in Monte Carlo. They also claim that Safra allowed Maxwell to launder Eastern European money through Republic National Bank. As an aside, given Maxwell's Eastern Bloc activities, he likely came into contact with an intriguing Bulgarian state-owned trading company named Kintex. According to the CIA, Kintex was a central coordinator for smuggling activities with a clandestine charter to facilitate Arab and Balkan smuggling operations, as well as the collection of scientific and technological interests in the West. An intriguing figure closely tied to Kintex was Mohammed Shakarchi, a prominent Geneva-based currency trader and the owner of Shakarchi Trading. From his offices in Zurich, Shakarchi boasted that he ran the most sophisticated currency exchange and commodity trading operations in Switzerland and also courted state officials in communist Bulgaria. At the same time, he was involved in the CIA's covert support for the Mujahideen in Afghanistan. According to Rachel Ehrenfeld, between 1981 and 1989, a CIA front company named Argon purchased millions of dollars worth of rare currencies from Shakarchi Trading, which were then sold to raise money for the Mujahideen. Shikarchi personally claimed he helped the U.S. transfer money to Afghan rebels and that he had aided the U.S. and other Western governments in their fight against terrorism. An intriguing U.S. partner of Shikarchi's was Capcom, a London and Chicago-based commodities future firm which operated between 1984 and 1988. According 
to the Congressional BCCI Affair Report, no entity is more mysterious and yet more central to BCCI's collapse and criminality than Capcom. BCCI's top management and, most important, Saudi shareholders were involved with Capcom, which moved billions of dollars in a largely anonymous fashion. Capcom also effectively laundered money originally deposited into BCCI by Manuel Noriega. Additionally, a DEA investigative memo accused Shikarchi of laundering drug money as well. According to Jonathan Marshall, the report stated that Shikarchi mingled the currency of heroin, morphine base, and hash traffickers with the currency of Middle East arms traffickers and jewelers buying gold on the black market. Shikarchi utilized some of the world's largest trafficking organizations to launder the proceeds of their drug trafficking activities and was closely associated with corrupt government officials and crime bosses. Investigators even traced laundered cocaine profits to an account Shikarchi held at Edmond Safra's Republic National Bank though Shikarchi denies all allegations and was never found guilty. Edmond Safra's name can also be found in Jeffrey Epstein's contact book, though the banker's name is misspelled. Additionally, Aero Leasing, the aviation company tied to CSF and Republic National, also appears in Epstein's black book with contact information for the Geneva and Zurich locations. Another financial institution worthy of discussion is Mainland Savings, a Houston-based savings and loans. When U.S. arms began flowing to Iran at the end of August 19. 85. It was Adnan Khashoggi through BCCI who fronted the capital necessary to set the operations into motion. The initial bridge financing was $1 million, followed shortly after by an additional $4 million. According to Khashoggi, this $5 million plus an additional $2.5 million was provided on loan by Roland Tiny Roland, the well-hilled British tycoon, corporate raider, and member of the Claremont Club. While Roland's involvement with the Iran-Contra affair is well-documented, he denies Khashoggi's claims. Tiny's denial aside, Khashoggi received this money through a rather intriguing institution, Mainland Savings. Prior to its collapse in 1986, 
this savings and loans was plugged into a wide network of crooked land developers, organized crime associates, and clandestine operators. Khashoggi's relationship with mainland savings began in 1977 when Mario Renda, an ambitious New Yorker with dreams of wealth and power, stepped off a plane in Riyadh, Saudi Arabia. At the time, Renda was a partner in International Planners and Developers Construction Consortium, IPAD, and had traveled to Riyadh hoping to secure funds from Khashoggi for a Saudi Arabian concrete home construction project. The meeting went well, and the arms dealer reportedly committed $5 million to the project. While the IPAD construction project never came to fruition, Renda and Khashoggi developed a friendship that would prove mutually beneficial for both men. Soon after returning from Saudi Arabia, Renda left IPAD construction and went to work as the treasurer of Arab International Bank. Arab International's specialty was certificates of deposits and would use vast petrodollar reserves to shop CDs around the world, seeking out locations that had the highest rates of return. Intriguingly, in 1973, the bank formed a joint venture with Lonro, the corporate monolith controlled by Tiny Roland. Renda placed himself front and center in the CD trade at Arab International, which provided him the inspiration for his next venture. In 1978, Renda returned to New York City and formed Aerobras Incorporated, a one-man firm aimed at capitalizing on Renda's cash-rich Arab associates. This timing was fortuitous, and amidst the 1980s rush on savings and loans institutions, Renda crossed paths with Martin Schwimmer, an accused money launderer for the Lucci's crime family, who also managed pension funds for several New York unions, including Teamsters Local 810, which was also reportedly close to organized crime interests. Renda and Schwimmer became instant friends and quickly struck a deal that would result in a 10-figure operation. Arabras Incorporated was renamed First United Funds, and Schwimmer was officially brought on board as a financial advisor. The two then began brokering deposits from union pension funds into savings and loans across the United States, collecting commissions from both the lending institutions and advisory fees from the unions. 
before their arrest, Renda and Schwimmer deposited money into roughly 130 savings and loans, all of which later collapsed. Renda's CDs were linked directly to massive, generally unpaid borrowing at each of these institutions. In addition, the borrowing was frequently carried out by an interlinked network of organized crime associates. According to Pete Bruton, besides Schwimmer's alleged involvement with the Lucis family, Renda was rumored to have controlled a lot of money being loaned for the benefit of Paul Castellano, the powerful head of the Gambino family. Notably, Castellano was one of several organized crime figures who were also clients of Roy Cohn. Renda was also affiliated with Lawrence Irizzo, the president of the mob-linked Vantage Petroleum Company. Irizzo was himself close to Martin Carey, the brother of New York Governor Hugh Carey and oil man Edward Carey. In 1979, Vantage Petroleum took control of Martin Carey's Petroleum Combustion International, which by that point had already carried out numerous dealings with Irizzo. Irizzo would later testify that Martin Carey had been involved in bootlegging gasoline with him and that the profits from these operations were being funneled into Hugh Carey's 1970s re-election campaigns. Irizzo's connection to both the underworld and politics is what initially attracted Renda's attention. At this time, Adnan Khashoggi was struggling to acquire proper permits for a helicopter landing pad at his home outside of New York City. In an effort to help his friend and likely curry greater favor with the arms dealer, Renda began searching for a means to expedite the permit's approval. At the same time, Leslie Winkler, an associate of Renda, was in talks with Irizzo regarding solutions to Irizzo's cash flow problems following his Vantage Petroleum scandal. Winkler arranged a meeting between Renda and Irizzo and informed Irizzo that if he was able to solve Khashoggi's permit problems, the arms dealer would be most appreciative and Renda might be able to assist him in gaining lucrative oil contracts. During the same meeting, Renda and Irizzo agreed to embark on a bank bust-out scheme similar to what Renda and Schwimmer were doing with the savings and loans. The general outline of the scheme involved Renda depositing funds in a bank of Irizzo's choice. 
the bank would then make loans to a Panamanian shelf company controlled by Iarizo. Once Iarizo received the funds, he would withdraw the cash and then collapse the company into bankruptcy, avoiding repayment and placing the loss back in the hands of the loaning institution. Renda would reportedly receive $35,000 under the table and Leslie Winkler received a small percentage for making the introductions. At the behest of Renda, Iarizzo chose to utilize the Panamanian shelf company Houston Holdings, which he had purchased from Stephen Sander Samos, a Hungarian refugee who found a lucrative niche selling off-the-shelf companies in Panama. Samos boasted his own connections to organized crime and the CIA. According to Pete Bruton, in the late 1970s, Samos helped Ray Corona, a money launderer, and Tony Fernandez, a narcotics trafficker and agency contract agent, purchase Sunshine State Bank in Miami. Samos was also connected to the Iran-Contra affair through Amalgamated Commercial Enterprises, ACE, one of Samos' off-the-shelf Panamanian companies. In 1985, ACE was purchased by Southern Air Transport and used to facilitate Contra support efforts. It's unclear whether or not Samos remained involved with the company after it was sold, but all of ACE's employees worked for International Management and Trust Corporation, which was also owned by Samos. ACE also utilized bank accounts at the Banco de Ibero-America an institution deeply implicated in laundering money for the enterprise and Samos. These fraud schemes are what gave birth to the relationship between Mario Renda and Houston's mainland savings. According to Pete Bruton, three years prior to Khashoggi's involvement with Renda and mainland savings, Khashoggi and two of his brothers bought a 22-acre property just southwest of the Houston Galleria. Intriguingly, the Galleria was developed with aid from the influential Marcos family of the Philippines. According to economist and journalist James Henry Khashoggi acted as frontman for Imelda Marcos on more than one occasion. Khashoggi developed ambitious plans for the Galleria tract. However, the project failed to gain traction until Clint Murchison Jr. became involved in 1979. Khashoggi and Murchison Jr. secured 
a $15 million loan courtesy of Texas Commerce Bank. A flurry of announcements followed, but again, the project failed to materialize. Clint Murchison Jr. ultimately dropped out of the project in 1982, and it would appear that Khashoggi pocketed $10 million from the Texas Commerce Bank loan. In 1985, Khashoggi involved himself in another high-profile development project, this time alongside San Antonio developer John Roberts. The pair planned to purchase a property in Aspen, Colorado, in order to build a large-scale hotel. Roberts was involved in several savings and loans, and the pair borrowed $44 million from Commerce Savings, which Roberts controlled, and Khashoggi lent him an additional $14 million through San Jacinto Savings. Khashoggi acquired this money by taking out a second mortgage on his Galleria tract. With $30 million in debt against the Galleria tract and the Aspen deal failing to gain significant traction, Khashoggi began to explore his options. The answer to his prayers came in the form of mainland savings. Flush with deposits from Mario Renda, mainland savings offered to purchase the Galleria tract for a grossly inflated $68 million, $22 million of which would stem directly from mainland savings, and the other $44 million would be provided by Austin-based Lamar Savings. The proceeds of this deal would be split as follows. The $30 million in loans from Texas Commerce Bank and San Jacinto Savings would be paid off. Khashoggi would then buy $10 million in preferred stock at Mainland Savings and use $12 million as a down payment to buy foreclosed real estate loans, and the remaining $16 million would be utilized by Khashoggi for miscellaneous costs. However, a problem arose when the Galleria tract appraised for $55 million, a far cry from the $68 million Mainland had originally hoped for. Mainland was forced to drop their offer to $58 million, which covered most of the debt and miscellaneous costs, but failed to supply the $10 million for Khashoggi to buy mainland stock and bad assets. As luck would have it, a solution arose. Khashoggi had bought additional properties next to the Galleria tract, which 
he had financed through Summit Savings, a Dallas institution that was controlled by John Roberts. On August 1st, 1985, just weeks before arms began flowing into Iran, mainland savings issued Khashoggi to $10 million lines of credit to be used for developing these other tracks. That same day, Mainland signed an additional $5 million letter of credit to Khashoggi. According to Pete Bruton, the $5 million line of credit vexed regulators and attracted the attention of the FBI. A subsequent investigation revealed that Mainland's executives had worked to conceal the loan from their board of directors. As we've discussed, the Iranian Arms for Hostages deal heavily relied on Khashoggi's $5 million startup funds. While Khashoggi claimed the investment originated from Roland Tiny Roland and not mainland savings, Roland vehemently denied this accusation. Mainland, for its part, insisted the loan was a guarantee to Khashoggi for his $10 million purchase of mainland stock. While tempting to write off the mainland savings activities as a curiosity or coincidence, a few more noteworthy connections exist between mainland savings, Lamar savings, and the murky worlds of BCCI and intelligence. Another major borrower at both Mainland Savings and Lamar Savings was Mounzer Haurani, a Lebanese-American from Utah who had extensive interests in Texas real estate. According to Pete Bruton, a former Haurani employee stated that Haurani would boast about his intelligence connections and a former high-ranking officer at Lamar Savings stated that Haurani claimed to have ties to Mossad. Potential ties to intelligence aside, Haurani was certainly associated with Utah Senator Orrin Hatch, who, as mentioned, was tightly connected to BCCI. Hatch claimed that his relationship with Haurani began in the mid-1980s and was partly based on their mutual belief in Mormonism. While Haurani told Mark Hosenball of NBC News that he had joined with Hatch and BCCI insider Mohammed Hamoud on various private schemes to free U.S. hostages held by terrorists in Lebanon. In 1986, Haurani's borrowing from mainland savings brought him into contention with the Federal Savings and Loan Insurance Corporation, which had taken over 
mainland savings after its collapse. Hatch went to bat for his friend, penning a letter to the director of the federal institution stating that Haurani's trouble may be capable of resolution and that his staff had found grounds for Haurani to bring substantial legal processes against mainland savings and the Federal Savings and Loan Insurance Corporation. In 1990, Hatch once again acted as Haurani's lobbyist. Haurani had been searching for funds for development projects in Illinois, Minnesota, and Texas. According to Hatch, he thought that perhaps an Arab bank would consider helping Haurani and reached out to BCCI requesting they lend him the funds. Hatch was also personally acquainted with Adnan Khashoggi. The arms dealer had been a presence in Salt Lake City since the 1970s, and his prominence in the community rose in the 1980s when he proposed plans to build two gold-colored office towers near the Mormon church. However, in a seemingly typical fashion, construction on the towers was abandoned in 1987, and Khashoggi fled Utah, leaving a number of unpaid loans and broken promises in his wake. It was during this period that Hatch met Khashoggi. Details on their relationship are scarce, but Hatch claims their relationship was simply a senator extending the same courtesies he would any big investor in Utah. All right, everybody, we are going to end part one right here. I look forward to seeing you all for part two. Love you all. Peace.